Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. Got a great show for you this week. We're actually going to be looking at a number of different things. Got a good Q&A coming up here. Going to look at some things that you've sent in. We're also going to be talking about Disney shows Loki and The Bad Batch. Steve Mailer is back with a segment, and I'm going to leave his guest as a secret until he introduces her. Great musical guest, though. Not giving away any more than that. So send us your questions and your comments. We're at 503-766-6264. One user-friendly on Facebook and Twitter, userfriendlyshow.com. Look forward to anything you want to ask us. Love to answer it. Brought to you by Oil Stop drive Through Oil Change. Grand opening special July 1st through August 31st. Receive $20 in free gas with every oil change. Mention this ad to get your free gas. Find us off Highway 99 in Sherwood behind Chevron. So what is in the news? App stores lowering their fees for smaller developers. All right. So big tech does listen sometimes. Evidently. Hmm. <laughs> um, what's going on here is we've talked about this in the past that there's a 30% charge on developers for anything you would sell through like Google Play, the Amazon store would be one of them too. I was trying to think Apple couldn't remember the word their store. Anyway, Jeez. all of that kind of stuff charges a fee. Steam, these different things. And to the bigger studios, it's part of the cost, but to the smaller studios, this can be a problem because it's a huge difference in the profit. So what's starting to happen here is after this has been talked about over the last couple of months and People have been looking at it, and there's the whole lawsuit with Apple and the different things that are going on there. They're starting to lower their fees across the board 10%. So it's now 20% for companies that are considered small studios, and that's anybody that makes less than a million dollars a year, which is something like 98% of the software distributors. Hmm. And it actually is enough to make a big of a difference. Google's taking this a step further and going to 15%. So definitely something that I think will help out a little bit. in the press release from Google, they were talking about this and saying this actually does affect pretty much everybody. And I think they're absolutely right. And I've done some apps myself. So, you know, we've run into this type of thing and subscriptions, all that kind of stuff across the board. And then hopefully you get to a million dollars. And at that point, I don't know about you, but I'll pay the 30%. Disney trying to copyright Loki. Yeah, I wonder how Loki feels about that. So we're going to talk mm-hmm. about this in a lot more detail in an upcoming segment. But what it is, is the... Loki television show is doing well on Disney Plus, and it isn't exactly what the headline is either when I was looking into this. It has to do with fan art. So we're going to go ahead and dive into this a little bit later, and I'll leave it for that. But definitely something very interesting to talk about. Not the first time Disney has tried tried to do this type of a thing. No, Disney loves messing with copyright. Absolutely. (laughs) In fact, in many ways, Bill, they've shaped the laws in the United States by trying to extend the copyright on their stuff as they get older and older, you know? So, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it was weird how Mickey Mouse was shaking uh, the Senate and governor's hands when they passed that bill to change copyright. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that was a coincidence. Um, (laughs) Sans drive software issue causes unwanted mining. Okay, what kind of mining are we talking about? Okay, so this is actually, this has to do with Bitcoin, and this is actually something that I ran into with a client and then started uh. looking online and finding the details on this. Hmm. And it is actually kind of an interesting thing. So first of all, a SANS drive is basically a network appliance for storage. 
And usually the way they're set up is you have multiple hard drives, the idea being if one drive fails, there's an automatic backup. And they're used in business networks, small and large, have been a technology that's out there for a long time. But like a lot of smart devices, the unit itself runs its own operating system and is basically its own computer set up specifically to do this. So the problem we were running into, and we've had this for a little while now, is that at night, the network would go berserk. And trying to track this down, and they have a, I, I'm, I'm a programmer, I'm not really a network guy, but the other person that was working with them couldn't find it, so I was happy to jump in and kind of take a look at this. And what it turned out to be when we started doing the, you know, when did this start, when did it happen type of thing, it was when they upgraded their SANS units, their drive units. And here on the software, on the machine, at one o'clock in the morning, it was set up to start a process to do Bitcoin mining using their server resources to do it, and then sending the information that it got to some third party on the internet. Well, what was happening is, in this case, the firewall was set up and done correctly, so it wasn't able to receive the data back, and it started pegging out the processor and everything else in the SANS unit at 100%. And in order to correct it, we actually had to go in and reload the operating system. And then, like I said, I looked online to kind of dig into this, and this is an issue that has been around there. And I think it's something that you could potentially have happen with pretty much any smart device. So whoever has gotten this out there is using your network, your resources, your bandwidth, and your electricity to mine Bitcoin for them. That's pretty cruddy. Yeah, to put it yeah, mildly. Really. And it was yeah. Bitcoin, right? Yeah, it was, it was Bitcoin. And okay, cause I know there was some old prepackaged software once in a while that was the uh, where you were going through doing something for NASA. Okay, yeah, that kind of thing. I actually remember what you were talking about, but no, this was definitely Bitcoin and definitely an unwanted app. It wasn't something that you would configure. It was just designed to start <laughs> working at that time. So that that's some, I mean, that's all kinds of problems. You know, network security problem. That uh, yeah, yeah, all the way. Yeah, up. yeah. Well, and it's just really, really cruddy. I, I don't need my RAID to assembly to be doing that. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's what it, what it comes down to. And you talk about network security with all the hacks that are going on. When you think about this is you have software that's running on the inside of your network that you know nothing about. So in addition yeah. to that, we don't know anything about the quality of that software, what else it's capable of doing. Is it stealing data? Exactly. Yeah. Or is it a way that somebody can get in? Uh -huh. you know, there's all kinds of things. It's a form of malware in many ways, and definitely is something to look at and worry about. And the other thing of it is, is the device that this was running on was an American-made piece of hardware, but the operating system was not. So I think it's important for anybody that's running a network and dealing with this kind of stuff to look at the devices you have and take a little time uh -huh. to go online and see if there's known problems like this, because... It's definitely something that was completely unexpected, which was also part of the problem why our network admin didn't find it right away, because you wouldn't expect that to cause the problem. So he's looking at the switch, he's looking at the server, you know, all this kind of stuff, trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, the way we caught it is we actually sat up overnight, waited until it started to figure out what was actually going on. And yeah. that's what we found. I mean, because, yeah, as a network admin, we'd be like, okay, the the switch just wouldn't belly up or your router is having a gateway problem or something and just going ballistic. Right. Right. And then all of it checks out and it's coming from a device <laughs> that you would never expect it. So, it, you know, talk about spending your wheels too on this, but uh, yeah, once we got it reloaded in the uh, drive ran Linux, 
So it was actually possible to just completely reload the operating system on it. And the client actually was, well, should we return it and swap it out? And I'm just thinking, well, we don't know what's going to happen in the next equipment. We now know what's going on, so let's fix it. And then we do have control over the situation. But just something to be aware of and definitely something that can cause problems. Antitrust regulators seek to reshare big tech. Yeah, and actually that should have been reshape. I think they had a typo in that headline. So, mm. so reshape big tech and what, what this reshape. Is, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> I was about to say, how are you going to reshare them? <laughs> so some of the losers, if this goes through, definitely is going to be Amazon because of Amazon Web Services and their sales platform and all that kind of stuff. And what they're looking at here is that a lot of the big tech companies have a great deal of control over what we see on the internet. Now, this is obviously not a new topic. We've been talking about it for a while, but you look at something like Google search results. They're prioritizing their own thing. They have the right to do that right now. So this is where this is kind of going. And antitrust is saying, you know, uh, this has gone too far. It's stifling competition. So they're going through and doing some setup and some bills and that type of a thing that could actually end up breaking these companies apart in certain ways, mm. kind of like what happened with AT&T a long time ago. And it is a situation that at the end of the day definitely creates more competition and does what it's supposed to. But like with AT&T, it can be a painful experience if all of a sudden uh-huh. your search engine doesn't work for a month or something. So, you know, definitely something that they are trying to get out there and deal with and then go from there. And go ahead and give me the last one here. Texas Power Companies Remotely Changing Customers' Temperatures. Another thing to be... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this could be the temperature of the person when they find out about it, too. Right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It'd be pretty hot under the collar if yeah. they messed with my... Uh, my uh, thermostat. So I mean, <laughs> just to be put it on a serious note, you know, some of these people, they had three-year-olds who were sent to the hospital. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Know, or big, seniors. You could have seniors be get sick too. And it's absolutely oh, yeah. a big deal. So what's going on is there's a lack of power with all of the heat and everything. So the power company has these smart thermostats that they've been giving away in a lot of cases to people, not just Texas, but this is where this came from. And now the power company goes in and changes it. And you're exactly right. If you have somebody that needs a specific temperature, it actually can and has created problems. This is User Friendly 2.0. We got a great show for you this week. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We're going to jump right in here to a special extended Q&A. We've been getting a lot of questions in, so we've been wanting to take a little bit longer to answer these. And to send them in, give us a call, 503-766-6264, social media, one user-friendly Facebook or Twitter, or userfriendlyshow.com. So what do we have for our questions today? What is the difference between an Electron app and a progressive web app? So start to drill down on this. This is actually a term that's been out there a little bit more seen lately with all that's been going on with the app stores and some of the stuff with selling and taking commissions and all that kind of thing. Basically, the difference between these two is an Electron app is what you would maybe call a full-blown native desktop application. And the Hmm. latter on that, the progressive web app, is something that runs in the confines of a browser. 
So like if you log on to something and you're running software or an application within the browser window, that would be that what that is. And so an Electron app is something that would install for one thing. And that's really the biggest difference between the two. An Electron app is something where you can usually do more with it because you've got direct access to the operating system and that type of thing, whereas the browser confines you to whatever the browser's constraints are that you're running in. Can you Do you have an example of these? I've never heard of them. Yeah, and like I say, they're just two different terms. An example, okay, something like QuickBooks would be something you'd install. Their okay. actual app. Or if you subscribe to it and run it through the browser, then that would be a example of a PWA. Oh, okay. How do I extend the life of my laptop battery? Yep, and this is a question that actually came in a little while ago. And it depends on what you're using. The laptop, you know, there's a couple of different things you can do. One of them, and one of the big ones, is don't always top off the battery. It's okay to let them run down a little bit. And you actually want to do that once in a while. Older battery designs would actually grow stuff inside the cells. And that's what would create what was called memory. So after a while, if you just let it go down to, say, 60% and charged it and kept doing that, all of a sudden, that's all the charge it would take. Now, newer technologies don't have that as much. But again, at the end of the day, it's a good idea to go ahead and let them run out every so often. This would be the same thing for your phone or anything else like that that has a rechargeable battery let it run, and then go ahead and charge it up. You don't have to do that every time, but you also don't have to need to try to keep it full. And one interesting detail on this is a lot of laptop manufacturers, I know Lenovo did this for a while, would actually have applications that wouldn't allow it to recharge unless it was down at least 10%. And the reason they did that was, again, to extend the life of the battery. Yeah, I had one where there was software on the machine where I could change it around once in a while. Right, right, exactly. Is it true that the cable companies share my internet? So this question is specifically about Comcast, but I've seen it across the board. And the answer to this is yes in certain circumstances. So what they're doing is if they have open (laughs) Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi that you can get on to remotely, a lot of times what that'll be is that everybody that subscribes that rents the actual Wi-Fi router from the cable company by default, it will open up a little bit of that to share the internet connection. So it doesn't actually conflict with your connection, and it's just a small amount, and it's kind of in tandem the way that they do it. But that is true. Now, you do have control over this, even though it's the default, is you can log in, and uh, in the example of Xfinity, there's an option in there to be able to turn this on and off, and most other cable companies have that too. One of the other things that I found, and this is a recommendation I just make anyway, is to consider buying your router because the rental fees, which I think were $14 a month or somewhere in that area, I was able to buy a router and just, it was about 60 bucks. So there's different ranges on that. Mine's a basic one. I already had the Wi-Fi and stuff in an existing network. So it was just the router. So after about four months, it actually paid for itself and its rent. And then you don't have these type of issues because you own the equipment and it's set up however you would set it up. Bad side of that, of course, is if it does malfunction, it's your responsibility and not the cable companies to fix it. But it does end up saving some money at the end of the day. And I'm about a year and a half into mine now, and it still works just fine. So definitely was a good investment. Do I really need to care about my privacy online? Yeah, listener question, and you would think the answer to this would be yes. But I think this gets a little more specific in are we going overboard? And this was more what they had asked 
with dealing with all the different things for privacy? Or is it really something to be concerned about? Now, my answer to that question would be yes, absolutely, especially with all the hacks and various other things that have been going on lately. I think the more that you can do to secure yourself, the better. With a lot of what's been going on, there's a lot of situations where it doesn't, either you don't have control over it, but what you can is better to do. So definitely things like unique passwords for banking and financial accounts. If you go onto a Wi-Fi network, maybe limit what you do not to include personal information like that. And some of the other recommendations are definitely a good thing. The other thing of it is, is stuff um, like getting, letting passwords out. There's still people out there that are using one, two, three, four, five, six, or the word password or something, even with all of the uh, controls they're trying to do to prevent that. It is definitely still a thing. And the other thing that's a big deal on the internet, devices. So these would be like your video cameras and other things. Change the default password. All of that's important. There's steps to take. And, you know, we've talked about it before. And, Jeremy, I know where you're coming from with that, but it is important. And, you know, you consider how many different devices and online accounts we all have now. The average being about 90 passwords online, it makes this much more difficult to deal with. But it is definitely something. And there's the idealistic world of you would have a different password that's 15 characters long and all that for each account. Nobody's going to do that. You have to take into consideration kind of what's more important and make up categories that way. Or get a password management system to where you can have all of the different passwords. The problem with that is, is if you ever lose the device or need to get on remotely, you won't know what the password is necessarily. When traveling internationally, is it safe to use my phone? Another question, travel is starting to come back up now. A couple of things to take into consideration on that is that there is usually a roaming charge, and you want to find out about that, and it changes from country to country. The other side of it is, is what country you're going to. I know Uh as a, for example, when I uh, was working for a technology company about 10 years ago now, I was working in the lab, and when equipment would come back from some countries, China being an example of this, it would be full of other software that we'd have to take off and things that was designed to eavesdrop. So depends on where you go. Look online and check it out and just know that there's also going to be a cost. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. So this section of our show today is actually a listener question that came in, and it's created a bit of a stir on social media. And basically what it is is that uh, Disney's new show, Loki, is doing pretty well, but Disney is wanting to claim the name Loki is their intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. So, And that's kind of been the reaction. In fact, they went on to another social media site and are trying to get people to take down uh, Loki-specific artwork that they're selling. Now, where this does take a little bit of an additional step is one thing from the the TV show and that kind of thing and the Marvel Universe character, but Loki actually goes back a century or two before that, even a few more. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, is uh, a deity from the Old Norse religion and definitely has been a part of a lot of different literature over the years and exactly all kinds of other things. So to actually say this is a new character. And then the other claim that was made is that the artwork that they're wanting them to take down isn't just the TV show, but as I was saying, is also stuff that goes into a lot of different categories and that type of thing. I'm 
I actually even have used Loki as a character in um, um, my little um, like comic book series I yeah. was doing. The web series. Yeah. So, yeah, and I've seen that. I've seen him on others too. Loki makes an appearance wherever he can, it seems like. And that isn't just the Disney. So I tried to reach out on this. Got a response back from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. At least I think that's where it came from. And uh, got a little bit of a discussion here. And it did confirm that uh, Disney is trying to file copyright claims over Loki fan art. So that's how they responded mm. to it. Not the th- everything in general. Uh, but the site that this was in effect on was something called Redbubble. And it's not something I'm particularly familiar with, but I know it's a platform that allows artists to sell their work on various different things like T-shirts and stickers and whatnot. And it's they're being told now that it is being removed from the site because it may contain mer- uh, material that violates someone's rights. So if you look back into the history of Disney on this, this isn't the first time that they've tried to do this thing. A lot of their other movies and some of the slogans and stuff that haven't picked up elsewhere that they've used in these things they've tried to copyright. It doesn't look like they've been particularly successful at it either. But I don't know. I just thought this was an interesting thing. Now, Bill, you are an artist and sell online. Gretchen, you're an artist and sell your work. And Jeremy, I know that you've worked in the art industry. I mean, we're not attorneys or anything, so this isn't legal advice. But how how do you guys think of this? I mean, if you did artwork like this and were told to take it down, I'd have a problem with it, right? It's a weird scenario of fair use. Whereas, okay, okay, and I'll just lay it out. My understanding, you technically, if you're using uh, a likeness of either the comic book one that is, you know, a published Marvel comic, Loki, right? Or you are using um, Tom Hiddleston's Loki from the cinematic universe, a very good likeness. Technically, that likeness is copyrighted. However, like the artwork that you make using that character is copyrighted to you. Yeah. Under fair use. Right. So it's like a weird gray area where it sets. Usually where the, like this problem comes in is like people just like pull screenshots or, you know, official art and just try to sell it on things. Mm. Um, I've seen that happen to other artists where people are basically pirating artwork. Right. That's pirating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in this case, like, Disney kind of has a little bit of leeway. Disney doesn't in other ways. The courts in America have never been completely specific about where that lies, where it, I mean, fair use is pretty well outlined. Um, Cause like a nonprofit can use certain amount of artwork, uh, especially if you're a state or a school, right? Um, you yeah. basically got free right to basically use things because it's not for profit. Um, exactly. As far as selling fan art, it, it's a very major gray area. Now, you and know, I guess I could yeah. get a likeness, and I've worked with this myself, so it, it does make sense that if you were to actually take a picture from the movie, and they would have an objection to that. And I could kind of totally understand it. But going back and taking the storyline, and, you know, again, we're not attorneys here, so this is something you'd have to ask an IP lawyer to really know. But even the whole idea of Loki and Thor and all the rest of this stuff comes from very old stories that have been around for a long, long time that exactly. Disney did not create. But they've created the movie based on the characters. So, you know, again, gray area, and where does it fall? And, you know, let's see if we can find someone that can actually speak more directly to this in coming weeks. We'll reach out and see what we can do. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Have you seen him? He's 
Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Joining us now, Steve Mailer with his guest, Denise Bridges. Well, thank you as always, Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen. I am speaking today with a friend who I've literally known for decades, and I've known her, and she's always been drawn to music. She has a lovely voice, and she is the leader of a wonderful band called Child of Mercy. Very gospel Christian music, but it's very, very beautiful. And her name is Denise Bridges. Denise, thank you so much for joining me today on User Friendly. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, um, I, it's been a long time since we've spoken, but um, it, it sounds like you're doing really, really well and you're keeping very, very busy, which is great. Tell us a little bit about Child of Mercy. Yeah, well, this whole name came about um, probably back in 2003 or four. Um, you know, it's kind of goes along with my story. I've been through a lot of stuff. I've made bad choices in my life. Um, there's some trauma. And, you know, after just going through everything, um, I just felt like I was a child of mercy in God's eyes, you know? Um, so he's the one God really inspired me with that name, child of mercy. And, um, a few years later, 2006 is when, um, I started just, you know, recording, working with other people and, uh, you know, getting an e our first EP out. Okay. Now, I mean, what my remembrance of you is that you were always involved in singing. You were always involved in music. Did that start with the church, like choirs or gospel music? Yeah, you know, it's funny that I did in high school, I sang in the choir, um, but never really sang solo or never really thought I could sing um, and mm -hmm. then pursued like a professional modeling career and got all caught up with that, mm -hmm. kind of fell into some, I think I you remember know, that. Yeah, eating disorder mm -hmm. and drugs and whatnot. Yeah, kind of took a wrong path. Um, but then after I, you know, surrendered and came back to God because I was raised in the church. Um, that's when kind of God revealed to me that hey, I want to give you this gift of singing yeah. and you know and kind of close the door to modeling and open the door to you know kind of glorifying God instead of myself, right? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when that yeah. all happened. So, okay. yeah. Now, how long is Child of Mercy? So, you was it, you said 2006? That's when it really started as okay. far as playing out and okay. recording. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how, how many performers do you have in the group with you? Well, it's varied over the years. Um, you know, there was like, I think there was five of us when we first started. There's usually always about five or six of us. Um, but it's changed over the years according to, you know, the availability of band members. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, they each stayed at least five, maybe more years each. But it kind of evolved over okay. time depending on, you know, people's lives and what was going on. Now, your your husband is one of your members, yes? Yes. He's the bass player. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. And... <clears throat> what you do, the music that you create, it's original music. Yes, it's original okay. music that I write. That you write. So you do most of the writing? Yes, I do. I have worked um, with my guitar player. Um, yeah, and he's maybe written part of the music or whatnot. But yeah, for the most part, I do all the lyrics and music. And when, you, uh, when you're doing writing, what is your source? What is your inspiration for what you create? 
You know, um, different things that have happened in my life. Um, I would say my inspiration is hope and my motto is never lose hope. And just because of, yeah, just because of what I've been through, uh, God is continually reminding me, don't, don't lose hope. And my life verse is Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it says he makes everything beautiful in its time. And I've seen that come to pass over and over again, even through Mm. the ugly dark mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. And so my writing is really the inspiration for the writing comes through that just wanting to bring hope and I I just my passion is to encourage people no, who are okay. down or struggling and so that's um really my passion okay. and that comes out through all of my songs. And well, you know, these days especially we all need continual messages of hope, don't we? Right, exactly. Yeah. How do you present this music? Do you perform live? Do you do like concerts? Do you do uh, church services? How do people experience your music live? Yeah, so we do concerts. We've done festivals. I've done conferences. Um, I go to celebrate recoveries. Oh, wow. I have a real heart for them. Um, and so, yeah, we play out. We've been playing out since 2006. We used to go on tour, you know, and just, you know, yeah, I mean, not a world tour, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But like, because you're from the Bay Area, you're you're in the Bay Area. Right. So in the Bay Area, then we go SoCal, NorCal, I've been to Arizona. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, just we've been to different places, um, depending on where God opens the door is really how I look at it. So. Now, in terms of your music library, a lot of CD releases, how do people get to your music? Yeah, so lately we've been releasing um, singles. And okay. so, you know, if you just look up Child of Mercy on Apple uh, Music, um, Amazon, nice. it's on all the platforms. So okay. if you were to just look up Child of Mercy, that would come up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's pretty easy to find us. What would you say the biggest venue you've ever performed in front of was? Oh, boy. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to Trying ask to you. Think. No, that's all. It's all good. <clears throat> um, probably either Spirit West Coast or Joshua Fest. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of how many people go to that, but there was thousands yes, of people. Yes, it sounds like it would be thousands. Yeah. So that's those are probably the two biggest venues. Um, that I can recall at this time. Okay. We do a lot of smaller venues as well. Like, you know, we've done college ministry or recovery groups. And honestly, I'll be honest with you. I do like the smaller venues, but Mm -hmm. I also like, you know, like a church, a big church that's packed full. We just did a concert last year, um, right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was wonderful. It was so much energy and I loved it. I miss that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's coming around again. Are are things opening up that way? Yeah. They're starting to slowly. (laughs) Slowly. Yeah. It's kind of hard to, to sing and express these wonderful message of messages of hope through a mask. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, I've been doing zoom, um, oh, wow. you know, type of things too. So that's been going on during this whole shutdown as yeah. well. So haven't ever, I didn't stop, you know, we oh, just good kept for you. going. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's been fun catching up with you and I think it's remarkable what you do. And I love that the the energy behind what you do is about hope and forgiveness and rebuilding because mm-hmm. that's, I don't know, these, these days that's just so very important. Well, it's Child of Mercy and they're available on a multitude of delivery music platforms. So check them out. And Denise Bridges, again, I thank you so much for catching up with me here on User Friendly. Talk to you again soon in the future, I hope. Okay, sounds good, Steve. Thanks. Okay, Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen, guys, take it away. Steve, thank you. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Great show this week, guys. Yeah. Yep. You know, I'm glad to have Steve back. He's done some interesting segments, and I love his guests. And uh, this week is no different, so it was kind of fun having that back. Welcome back, Steve. And, you know, talking about today's show, we got to talk about Loki a little bit earlier, but I know one of the other things that Disney is doing out there is the Bad Batch cartoon. Now, I've enjoyed it. But mm-hmm. um, looking at the internet, I might not share that opinion, or a lot of people might not share that opinion. With I don't know. I I keep hearing rumors that it's not doing well and all this other stuff. But I think people need to realize that this was uh, like a, like a standard cartoon. Uh, it's not like the end of the Clone Wars, where they basically made a motion picture into a car, you know, a cartoon motion picture. I mean, it, it's not the same thing. And, um, there's a lot of complaining that, uh, Omega is just like, um, Grogu and stuff like that. And I, I kind of beg to differ. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, there is a comparison between hardened warriors being matched up with a kid, but Omega, they're actually starting to train her. And I'm seeing that they're going to train her to be an effective part of their team. Right. While the Mandalorian was just trying to do the right thing and make sure this child goes to the people that he belongs to. Right. I mean, I don't get the comparison between the two other than they're both kids. Well, yeah. I think that's, that's about the, where that ends, you know? Well, that's the thing. Both Mandalorian and the Bad Batch, those groups are both warriors. Hard, yeah, warriors. And they're saddled with, with a child. Grogu and Omega. Yeah. But, I mean, this isn't... This isn't a new plot line or anything. It's been done for a long, long time. Yeah. There's several different uh, comic book series. There's a whole lot of older stories, uh, Japanese sagas with, you know, a samurai and, and a child. It's been done. It's not like it's a new idea. Yeah. It's, just, it's you know, and new characters. I think she's fine. Yeah. I think she's a, I think she's going to be an interesting character as long as it kind of goes in the direction that I'm foreseeing that she's going to become a valuable team member where she's actually productive yeah, and, and actually she has been. Yeah. And that definitely feels like it. So we'll have to see what happens. I don't know. I've been enjoying it. I like the cartoon. Definitely yeah. continue to watch it on Disney plus there. So we'll see where that ends up. All right. Upcoming events here. And we've actually got some now we've been talking about these for the last few weeks. It's going to be kind of mm-hmm. interesting to go. Game developers conference is coming up in July. That will be a virtual event. we chatting with their press people, and it looks like it's going to be a good one this year, so that's going to be fun to cover. San Diego Comic-Con, I haven't heard a lot about, but also going to be virtual. 
And then our first Boots on the Ground event in over a year and a half is going to be Black Hat in Las Vegas, July 31st, August 5th. Chaz will be covering that for us. Going to be a great show. Looking forward to it and looking forward to getting back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Until next week, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0, copyright 2014 to 2021, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or the station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by wearetechnology.com. Podcasts available at userfriendlynation.com, theanswerportland.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.